Tonight we continue with our survey of the Minor Prophets, what I call Musing Through the Minor Prophets. We've given you an introduction to the Prophets. We've looked at the Prophet Jonah already. Now we come to Joel. And again, this is just an overview. In contrast, in the morning message, we'll be going through the First uh, Corinthians verse by verse. This is just an overview so you can get a gist of what the Minor Prophets are all about. And, and later on, we'll be taking particular books and going through it in detail. But this is just an overview of it. The book of Joel. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Joel, please. That's in the Old Testament somewhere. Flip through it, you'll find it. It's a small book, only three chapters. Okay? Now, I'm using an outline by one of my school uh, persons. Not, not completely, we've sort of adapted it somewhat because he laid it out uh, pretty good. And we're doing it in a way that we were supposed to do. Now remember, because this evening is, the evening services now be geared more towards the training or, or, or the, the teaching of the books rather than preaching. And so we want also to give you some idea of how you can do Bible studies as well. So as we go through this overview tonight, you will see that we are using the method that we were supposed to do when we were doing our doctoral studies, where you make an overview of the book, an overview of the chapter, and then of each segment you make a summary statement and then you demonstrate that that summary statement is correct by breaking the, 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 the passage down in detail verse by verse. And that's what we'll be doing tonight just to give you an example of that. The date and recipients of this book, Joel, it means Yahweh is God. Yahweh. The overall theme is the day of the Lord. Again, it could be the day of Yahweh. Whenever you see in your Bibles the word Lord spelled in capital letters, L-O-R-D, you know they are referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant keep making and keeping God of Israel. Now the date we have here really, uh, this is just a guess. No one really knows for certain when the book was written, but generally speaking it says it is somewhere around uh, what they call the late pre-exilic period. That's talking about before they went into Babylonian captivity. Uh, they have, we have here 597 or 586 BC, but as I said that's a little doubtful. The same thing is true of the book of Jonah. But we believe that these were the first prophets to, uh, to preach uh, to the southern and the northern kingdom of Israel. The recipients were the people in Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, we know this because when you go through the book, you'll see that there are many references to Zion and the temple. And, of course, that was situated in Jerusalem. Now, there's a outline that I want to show you as well, just to show you the broad divisions of the book uh, here. You notice it's divided into two sections. So on the left side, you have locust plagues. On the right side, you have blessing. Because that's how the book is divided. There's a focus first on judgment, and then there's a focus on blessing. The overall theme or focus of the book has to do with the day of the Lord. 
but this gives you some idea of the layout so when you're reading it. And the focus on judgment is from verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 17 of chapter 2, and then from verse 18 of chapter 2 to the end of the book in chapter 3, you have the blessing. On one second is called Zion's or Jerusalem's or Judah's discipline, and you'll see God uh, focusing on discipline, or we'd say judging, but it's disciplining Israel because of the disobedience. Then, on the other side of this, the deliverance because of repentance, promise, repent, promise blessing based on their repentance. The Lord fights against Israel. The first half of the book, the Lord fights for Israel on the second part of the book. We have the introduction, and I'll be going through this in a little more detail in a moment. In the first three verses, then we have uh, the, um, the idea of God saving them from the locust plague. Now, when we look at this locust aspect in the book of Joel, sometimes it's confusing. Because sometimes you don't know whether he's talking about the real locust or he's talking about people, armies, because he combines them, uh, the locusts symbolically, to speak of future judgment. And sometimes it's difficult to tell which is which, as we'll see as we go along. But then there's repentance and then forgiveness and spiritual awakening on the last part. The third, on the first part, again, you have lamentation, the people crying out to God. And then we have the blessing and for salvation. And then there's a final point on judgment, coming back to judgment at the end of the book as well. And so you have it divided like into past and the future. That's how the book is divided. All right, the key verse, the key verse or verses really, turn to it in your Bible if you don't mind, is chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. The beginning of the, uh, the uh, latter part of verse 11, it says, The day of the Lord is great. The day of Yahweh. Now this phrase, this term, you're going to see again again in the book of Joel. The day of the Lord. It has different meanings to it. The day of the Lord primarily refers to that period, that time of judgment in the future, including the uh, what we call the tribulation and ending with the coming of Christ. But in the book of Joel, you'll see that he has what we call a local or historical day of the Lord, judgment upon them because of the sin. In fact, he even calls the locust plague as a day of the Lord in order to symbolize the judgment that will come when the final day of the Lord is come. But this is a very significant term. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Now, he's speaking of the final day of the Lord here. This, now notice it goes on, who can endure it? But even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Now, this verse actually gives us a concise uh, description of the basic structure of all the prophetic books. Warning for judgment, invitation for repentance, 
and a promise of blessing. That's what all of the prophets are about. All of them, the major and the minor ones. Judgment because of disobedience, invitation uh, for repentance, and a promise of blessing if repentance is done. In other words, this is like a fulfillment or an illustration of what Paul meant when he says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You will really find, if ever in the Bible, where God gives judgment, where at the same time he does not also offer grace. And the principle, as I mentioned to you before, is that I have employed in my own life, that whenever I see problems, difficulties, pain, or whatever it is, I look for the grace behind it or in the midst of it somewhere. We can even do that when we look at what's happening in Haiti right now. Look and see if you could find God's grace in the midst of all of this. And it will be encouragement to you. But the overall message of Joel can be stated along these lines. It is the ultimate deliverance from Yahweh, in other words, coming from Yahweh, at the time of his future judgment upon the nation, the northern nations especially, which will occur as they, his people, cry to him in repentance, just as they did during the local devastation through the swarms of locusts. In other words, Joel uses this plague of locusts and the destruction and the devastation it brings to the nation as an illustration of what will happen to the people of Israel if they do not repent. In other words, the message is, turn to me for deliverance from the day of the Lord, referring to the judgmental aspects of that day. Turn to me for deliverance from the day of the Lord, that terrible day, just as you turn to me for deliverance from the plague of locusts. You see, when the locusts came, the people turned to God, crying out for deliverance, crying out for salvation. Well, God says now, all right, when you had this physical, local judgment, you cried out to me, you turned to me. Well, I want you to do the same thing in view of the judgment that will come upon you if you do not turn from your sin. You will be a part of the day of the Lord, a terrible day, an awful day. That's the message. Let's look at the text then. We break it down first in the introduction. Now here is a summary statement of verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to break those verses down in detail, explaining them piece by piece. In verses 1 through 3, Joel, the prophet and son of Pethuel, urged the people to hear his message in view of the locust plague and to pass it on down through the generations. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Joel. Look at your Bible. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Petuel. And so God is calling this prophet to give his message. And it is what? It is the word of the Lord. You will see that phrase repeated again and again and again in the prophets. They're not preaching their own message. They're preaching the word of the Lord. 
And then he gives an exhortation to pass down the message. In verse 2, Joel urges the elders and the people to listen to him since nothing has happened like this locust plague before. Look at verse 2. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. He wants this message to go on and on. In other words, he's saying nothing like this has happened before and nothing like this will happen again. The locust plague. Keep those words in mind. Because Jesus Christ, speaking about the tribulation period, he says exactly the same thing. When the tribulation comes, when that day comes, after the uh, false prophet sets up a, a statue of the image of the Antichrist, and the great tribulation begins, Jesus says nothing like this has happened before, and nothing like this will happen Again, referring to the utter devastation and judgment that will be poured out at that particular time. And now Joel is saying the same thing about these, this plague of locusts. Nothing like this has happened before. Don't you forget it. Israel does that in connection with the Holocaust. Never again. And they bring things to our memories, minds every now and then. So they will never, never forget the Holocaust. This is God says it. Don't forget this. This is going to be terrible. That's what he's saying here. And he urges them to pass it on. And then this, an extended passage begins with verse 4 of chapter 1. And goes to chapter 2 and verse 32. And here's a summary statement of that section. An historical judgment of God and deliverance. In other words, a plague of locusts will come and infect the land, but God will deliver the people. After Joel describes this local day of the Lord through terrible devastation caused by the locusts on the land and the people, he urged them to repent. The Lord had pity for the people and promised to remove the northern army. Now, here this is a prophecy concerning the Assyrians. Well, first, the first northern army to come upon them will be what? The Babylonians to put them in. Then the Assyrians will come later on. He calls them the northern army. And he's referring also here to the locusts, symbolic of the armies to come. He will remove them from them to restore the land to the people. Now, let's look at verse 4. This is a description of the invasion. Joel describes the total devastation which was brought about by four kinds of locusts. It's like an organized nation stripped the land of all its crops. Listen to verse 4. When the gnawing locusts, that's the first kind, has left. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. That's the second kind of locust. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. That's the third kind. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. These locusts were organized. 
and he compares them to an army. One battalion comes in, they do their duty. The next one comes in, they wipe up what they left over, and it continues through four. Now, some scholars like to think that what is being referred to is the four nations, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome, through the history of Israel, and I believe that is quite true. And so he, this swarm of locusts then, Joel is using to give us a picture of what God is doing in the future. Now, based on this complete devastation, strategic, and these locusts, I mean, these were organized. And the idea is that's exactly how the armies of the north will come after Israel in an organized fashion, one after the other, devastating the whole land of Israel. And we know that's happened. And it's still going on. It isn't finished. Still going on. So in light of this, Joel calls to the people. It's a call to mourn. Joel urges the people to mourn over the devastating locust invasion. He begins in verses 5 through 7 with the drunkards. <laughs> the drunkards should awake, he says, and mourn the devastation which the locust nations has brought upon the vines and the land. Notice what he says. Awake! Drunkards and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. In other words, your supply is gone. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig trees splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. This is total devastation. All of the vines in the country has been eaten up completely. Some people wonder why the drunkards are addressed. Well, this gives an indication of the degradation and immorality of the land. Everybody is drinking, not taking care of the families, their homes, the land, and so on. They're driven away from God. And so Joel is saying, you're not going to have any more wine. It's going to be taken away from you. But then he also says in verses 8 through 10, that the land should mourn because of the devastation brought upon the field, the grain, and the oil. Notice, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of a youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. That means there's no more worship because these resources were necessary for the temple to go on. No more worship. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord because they cannot go about leading the people in worship. The field is ruined. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. The land should mourn. The priests should mourn. Then he goes down and he says, the farmers should mourn. Let's read from verse 11. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wear, O vine dresses, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate and the palm also and the apple tree and all the trees of the field dry up 
indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. This is total devastation, hopelessness. Then he goes to the priests. Verse 13. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withered from the house of your God. He's calling for repentance on the part of the people. Everyone! From the drunkard onward up to the priest, or from the priest all the way to the drunkard. Everyone is calling for repentance because of the devastation that has come upon the land. The idea, if you don't repent, devastation will continue, and more terrible devastation will come as well. Notice verse 14. There's a call to the cry to the Lord for deliverance. Joel, in this verse, urges all of the people to fast, to come to the house of the Lord in a solemn assembly and cry to the Lord for deliverance. Notice, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Mourn to the Lord. You would only do this, I would only do this if we are convinced and have that conviction that God's judgment is really coming upon us or upon the land. A godly response to the warning and the invitations of God is what Joel is looking at. Fasting. Fasting before God. Mourning before God because of judgment. This is not a fast where you go around all dressed up telling people I'm fasting. No, no. This is the fasting that drives you on your face to go before God, to cry out for his mercy, to cry out for his blessing. But you only do that if you are convicted of your sin. You wouldn't do it otherwise. But when you are, you will. When you really come to that place where you believe that what is going on in our country is God's judgment, like we like to say, upon the druggies and all of those type of things, it's only when you're willing to come to that point of mourning before God and fasting that you really show God that you believe that his judgment is real. That's what Joel is doing here. But now he goes on to verse 15. This is, this, now he looks at the significance of the plague. We, he calls this a local day of the Lord. In other words, judgment that symbolizes the day of the Lord in the future is symbolized by this plague. Joel proclaims that a day of judgment, the day of the Lord was come, has come from the Almighty, bringing total devastation so that he's, and the animals call of deliverance. Look at verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, the day of judgment. Now for us personally, we could put this day of judgment in anything in our lives that we know will happen if we don't put, any, if we don't put things right in our lives. God's judgment will come, his discipline. 
Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Notice this now. This ain't coming from the devil. This total destruction is coming from the Omnipotent One. This is coming from God Almighty. Verse 16 describes the day of the Lord. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The bonds are torn down. For the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly. Because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So he's describing all the drunkards, the farmers, the priests, the land, the animals. Now he talks about himself. Verse 19. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. For the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Friends, Joel is describing utter devastation here. And he's using a historical event. We would call it today a natural disaster. We would call it today an act of God. This plague that totally devastates the land. Everything is gone. Joel is saying the same way the plagues have judged this land. If you do not repent, turn to me, turn from your wickedness, you will face the day of judgment just like this in the future. Powerful message here. That's why a lot of people don't like to go to the prophets today. Because they say, you know, grace here. Oh, yes, there is. Because there's an invitation for repentance. And then blessing will come. That's he puts it here. Everything is cut off from the land as we see here. Now, he then goes on to chapter 2. And here, the day of the Lord and God's deliverance is described and brought into play. After Joel called the people together to describe the coming of the day, the Lord, and to urge the people to repent, the Lord had pity for the people and promised to remove the northern army. Now, the northern army can mean three things in the passages of freedom. First, it can refer to the locusts. Secondly, it can refer to the armies of Babylon. And third, it could refer to the armies of Assyria later to come in the history of Israel. Now, he says, first of all, that the day of the Lord is a day that calls for immediate repentance. And so he calls for an assembly. Look. At verse 1 of chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. That's the trumpet call. In verse 2 it tells us it's a time of darkness. A day of darkness and gloom. 
As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. Now notice, there has never been anything like it. Nor will there be it again after it to the years of many generations. Then he talks about the judgment of the army. A fire consumes before them. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them. But a desolate wilderness behind them. They wipe it clean. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. He's describing now the armies that will come upon them in judgment. But he's looking at the locusts who look just like the armies that will come. With a noise as chariots, they leap on tops of the mountains, like a crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle causes terror to come upon the people. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. Look at the army. It's a disciplined army. Notice it's organized well. Notice what it says in verse 7. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. Now notice, he's looking at the locusts to describe the armies that will come. But these locusts are doing the same thing. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in line. Nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They entered through the windows like a thief. This is a disciplined army, skilled at warfare. The locusts, like a mighty army. That's why some people, when they read this, say they cannot be referring to real locusts. But I believe they are. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, Joel is using them to say, tell the, the people of Israel, if you do not repent, the same way that these locusts came in so strategically and attacked so tactfully, so will the armies of the north destroy you if you do not repent. Look at verse 10. Before them the earth quakes, the heaven tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the star lose their brightness. And during research on this, they said that when these plagues of locusts come, the sun is blocked out completely. So many millions of them, you just cannot see the sun. Verse 11. He calls them the Lord's army. Yahweh's armies. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Do you notice that? It's his army. That's the one who is using these locusts and using the armies to come as his instrument to discipline his rebellious people. That's always the principle in Scripture where God used the unregenerate, the pagan, to discipline his people for disobedience. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? And now notice this tremendous promise here. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, with weeping and mourning. And notice, and rend your heart and not your garment. You see, it's not the outward repentance. He wanted inward repentance. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. He will not judge if we repent. That's the message here. Now many scholars, when they look at these locusts, they try, they have a problem finding out who, or deciding who they are. Are they literal locusts? Are they figurative of many armies? Are they figurative of only one army, the Babylonian? Are they depicting both locusts and armies? Or are they supernatural creatures? Some believe that that's what they are. You have to decide on your own. I believe they are literal locusts, but they are figurative of the armies of Babylonia and of Assyria. And so I believe that they depict both locusts and real armies. In other words, Joel is using this plague of locusts as a teaching moment. And he says the same way God has allowed these locusts to come and destroy your land because you did not keep faith in the covenant with me, then I will bring upon you the curses that I promised if you break the covenant. And that's exactly what he's doing. But he offers right in the midst of it a call for repentance and God will bless, he says. Let me read the verses. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? You remember Jonah? Jonah knew exactly what God would do if the people repent. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. And so this actually is a rhetorical question. If you repent, God will not judge, is the idea. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Verse 15. Joel now calls for repentance and an assembly of the people. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room. And let the bride out of a bridal chamber. Let the priest, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord. And do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? This is a fantastic message here. Joel urges the people to call a fast and gather together and pray for the Lord to relent so that the nations will not mock them on their God. And beloved, listen to this. Whenever we do not obey the word of God, and when, whenever we go our own way, professing to be Christians, but living like the devil, we bring reproach upon the name of Christ and the world mocks us. The world mocks us. Now, in verses 18 through 27, 
God's response gives a response and he makes a promise. He responded by being zealous for his land and his people and having pity on them. So he promised to remove the northern army. It's always the northern army away from them and to restore the land, the people. Notice his response in verses 18 and 19. The Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach amongst the nations. That's a tremendous promise. Not fulfilled yet. But I will remove the northern army. I believe this is referring to Assyria rather than Babylon. I think he's looking way ahead. And I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will rise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. Contacts against the people of God and God will judge them severely. He will fight for his people. Then uh, this is a tremendous promise he makes, removing the armies and defeating them. And then he will restore the land. Do not fear, O land. The land is an important subject in the prophets, the land of Israel. That's why there's so much fight going on right now. It's because of the land, the land, the land. We have family members fighting over inheritance, the inheritance of the land. That's all that is over there. Two brothers fighting over who owns the land. That's what started. Kind of spread out, didn't it? But that's what it's all about. Look at what he says now. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded its full. So rejoice, sons of God, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. And the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. That's a tremendous promise here that he is making. Then I will make up to you for the years. Now notice this blessing from God. He says... I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Now you should underline that in your Bible and highlight it. This is the grace of God and the God of second chances. He's saying to you here, I don't care what it was in the past, how you've ruined all the opportunities I've given you. You turn to me and you faithfully serve me. And I will make up for all the years that you've wasted. Isn't that something? That's an amazing promise. Let me read it again. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust. Notice he's going to mention each one. The swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust. The stripping locust. And the gnawing locust. Now notice what he says. My great army which I sent among you. These locusts didn't just come upon the land by chance. God sent them there as his army. You know what he said of Cyrus, the king of Babylon? He called Cyrus what? 
my servant. The king of Babylon went in and they conquered Israel and they took them captive. God did it through his servant Cyrus, one of the most wicked kings ever live on the face of this earth. But God used him to discipline his people. That's what he did here. So you got to watch out as a Christian how you talk about bad luck. When you talk about bad luck, you better look at your life to see whether or not you have a bad life. There's no such thing as bad luck for a Christian. When things come into our lives that we can see that God is not working in our lives to bring us to a place of Christ-likeness or whatever it is, then we see it as a point of discipline in our lives. Now notice, he gives a promise for the future. We call this an eschatological promise. In other words, it has to do with the end days. And this is the promise to judge the nation and to restore Judah. Notice what he says. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Notice, after this, after all the judgment has taken place. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. You should be familiar with that because we hear that being spoken today by prophets. People who say they see dreams and they see visions and they have prophecies. And they want to prophesy over you and they bring this verse. That's a misuse of this passage. Yes, it says here, the young people will prophesy and the old people will dream and see visions. Because that's all they can do anyway, go to sleep. The old people, I'm only kidding with that. All right. But this refers to the outpouring of the Spirit. In the future when the Lord heals the land, in the future in this book, he will pour out his Spirit on his people. Even the common people is the idea, not only priests and prophets, but the common people, everybody. Then miracles will occur in the sky as part of the coming day of the Lord. Now, I believe when you read this in the book of Acts, I believe you will see it and this discussion over this. I think this has been partially fulfilled in the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But the second part of it with, this, with the all of the events in the sky and the planets and all of those things here. That's probably coming in with the day of the Lord and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we won't have time to go into that. But then he goes into chapter 3. This is where the judgment is announced and described. Joel proclaims that Yahweh as Judah's stronghold will judge the nations at Jehoshaphat with a swift talionic judgment because of what they did to Judah. Talionic means they were going to get, you did this to me, therefore I'm going to do it back to you. That's the idea here. Let me read the passage for you as we close. From chapter 3, verse 30. Let me finish that. I didn't finish that. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. That didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be delivered. I believe this has to do with the, the um, tribulation period. 
Because we're going to have a great, great revival during the tribulation period. Millions of people will be saved. And they will call on the name of the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be, saved, will be saved. For on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls, there's a great day of salvation coming even in the midst of judgment for those who refuse to obey. Then he says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is now talking about Armageddon. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the nations of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far away from their territory, behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. And I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of sons of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation. For the Lord has spoken. He said, what you did to my people, I will do to you. The Lord is fighting for his people. He's talking about when he comes to judge the nations for the way, for the way in which they treated his people Israel. And he goes on to describe the blessing that will come. Proclaim this among the nations. Talks about the war first. Notice what he says way down in verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But notice this. But the Lord is a refuge for his people. A stronghold to the sons of Israel. Notice now. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Now notice this beautiful, beautiful passage. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow like water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. You see now that valley is important for these trees because that's where they got the wood and everything to supply the temple for worship. He's describing the fact that worship will not be interrupted anymore. Egypt will become a waste. Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. That means by his people. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, 
And notice this. For the Lord dwells in Jerusalem. Jerusalem belongs to Yahweh. And he will dwell in it. That's how this book ends. That's how the book of Revelation ends. After all of the judgments described in, from, from chapter 5 through 19. The book ends with what? The Lord. The Lord dwells in the new Jerusalem. God is there with his people. But it's only after judgment upon those who reject him. But he's saying to all right now, you can escape the judgment and become a part of the blessed if you turn to Jesus Christ. If you turn from your sin and own him as your Lord. He will live in your midst. He'll be your God. That's the book of Joel. The day of the Lord. Selah. Next time we go, we take a look at Amos. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your prophet who declares the word of God. Thank you for Joel who so vividly describes for us the judgment that is to come upon this earth for all Christ's rejectors. God grant that everyone in here will not have to face judgment of any kind because they will place their faith in Jesus Christ. Help us as your people not to face discipline because we refuse to obey the word of the Lord. Help us to heed the word of the prophet to repent because our God is merciful and he will forgive and restore the years that we have wasted. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.